Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Wu Do with Megan Akeshup at the 50th anniversary of APSA, the American Pediatric Surgical Association. Today, we have the distinct honor of sitting with Dr. Alan Goldstein. He is the Surgeon-in-Chief of the Mass General Hospital for Children. He is also Chief of Pediatric Surgery as well as Director of the Pediatric Neurogastroenterology Program there. Dr. Goldstein, thank you for coming on with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So to kick things off, why don't you tell our audience, uh, you know, a lot of us know about you, but uh, in your own words, where'd you get started? How'd you come to become a surgeon-in-chief of the Mass General Hospital for Children? Kind of that trajectory. Great. I uh, did my medical school at Harvard in the uh, HST program and then uh, completed my surgical residency at Mass General Hospital. In 2000, I went to Columbia and spent two years doing my pediatric surgical fellowship, and I knew I wanted to come back to MGH because I was interested in pursuing an academic career, and it was important to me to go to a place that had an established uh, legacy of academic surgery and surgeon scientists. So I was thrilled when they took me back, and I've been there for the past 17 years. You are an academic surgeon, and it's clearly very important to you. Pediatric surgery and surgical oncology seem to be the two fellowships that still kind of have that requirement that you need to do that research, take that time off during residency um, in order to pursue those fellowships. And we've, at this conference, interviewed all these pioneers in surgery. They're clearly surgeon scientists. Even if they didn't run a basic lab, they were very innovative, inventive. But in this day and age, Research has expanded to health services research, outcomes research, clinical research, educational research. So I'm wondering what your opinion is about the role of pediatric surgeon or an academic surgeon conducting basic science research. Why is it important? Is that necessary when you're thinking about these fellowships and thinking about academic surgery? That's a great question and one that many people are asking any area of investigation is worthwhile as long as it's done rigorously with a goal toward improving patient care. For me, basic science has the opportunity to ask the most fundamental questions and to really uh, sort of strive to answer those questions and ultimately, uh, hopefully, translate them to the uh, bedside. It is difficult to pursue basic science in an era when it's just becoming so much more complicated to do so. The advance of science means that individuals who do it need to be able to stay up to date in it. And that means doing, you know, using techniques, methodologies that are current. And that is hard to do while you're trying to also have a clinical practice. But at the end of the day, you have to pursue whatever makes you happy. And if you love basic research and have sort of a passion for the opportunity to ask simple, fundamental questions, then it's what you have to do. The question that everybody has to struggle with when they go down this path is how do you do it successfully? The, you asked about the lab time 
that people take during residency to uh, sort of develop skills in research. You can't force somebody to develop an interest in basic research. I think often people do it in order to get a fellowship spot because, it, like you said, it's seen as a requirement. That's unfortunate, in my opinion, and hopefully people will see it more as an opportunity and not a requirement, but it means that they have to do something that they're interested in and could see themselves doing for the rest of their careers rather than just checking off a box. Yeah, and that's, so one of the discussions I've heard is consideration of those who truly do want to start their own lab, that it may be more beneficial to take that time off at the end of residency, complete your clinical training, and then do your two years. So that way you can, you're closer by the time you, you become an attending to starting your own lab and you've, you've developed that, those skills, your grants and things may even still be active. However, then the consideration is how do you review those people? for fellowship applications. So what are your thoughts on that? That's also a terrific question. The American Board of Surgery, I think, is trying to tackle this. The concept of taking two years off for research and then completing two to three years of residency followed by two years of fellowship and you get back into the lab five years later when the field has completely changed and likely the techniques you learned are obsolete creates a, a problem for that uh, aspiring surgeon scientist. I don't have an answer for it. I think that in some medical uh, fellowships, the research time is embedded with the fellowship time. So maybe a year of clinical fellowship and a year or two of research. Changing the paradigm is challenging. Moving the, the years of research would require a lot of juggling by a lot of surgical programs. So how you do it, I don't know, but I do think that some change is needed so that the surgeon scientist can remain competitive and get started on a trajectory, you know, that really can aim for success. And that actually dovetails really nicely with some of your own work. You recently were the lead author on a recent paper in the Annals of Surgery. It was called A Roadmap for the Aspiring Surgeon Scientist in Today's Healthcare Environment. Would you care to provide any further insights on this paper? Yeah, thanks. This paper followed an earlier uh, paper in Annals where we queried the uh, s academic surgical community um, just to see what the challenges were than they, that they were experiencing. And we had over a thousand surgeon scientists respond to that. It was a study done through the uh, Basic Science Committee of the Sur Society of University Surgeons. And so based on the challenges identified, then we tackled the question, well, you know, how do you then achieve success. Some of the challenges include the fact, facts that are obvious now that funding is much harder to obtain. It's harder to be competitive. Science moves so quickly and it takes a lot of time and effort. Hospitals are really driven by the, the margin. They always tell you no margin, no mission. And that margin is driven by interventionalists. So surgeons are seen as sort of a pathway to profit for a hospital. And that creates a real challenge for a department of surgery that wants to support scientists. These, the compensation models that are used in many hospitals, most departments of surgery are heavily driven by RVUs. And that just means that a surgeon could either uh, spend 100 to 200 hours trying to write an R01 that is likely going to be rejected on its first submission 
and in the end to get you know 20 to 40 percent of the nih cap to support their salary or they could just do more operations so if money's your driver you're not going to be a surgeon scientist and that's fine people who have a passion for science will do it but only if they're in an environment that will support it so in terms of a uh, roadmap for success, the first thing is to choose that environment, to identify a department that's in a hospital, that's in a medical school system that shows, that demonstrates that they understand the value of clinicians doing research, and not just that of surgeons doing science. It's a bad idea to go to a place that doesn't do it and to think that you'll sort of uh, pave a new road at that at that department of surgery. It's better to go to a place I would recommend to young um, graduating fellows or young faculty, stick with sort of what's known and go to a place that's done it before and that obviously has the resources and support systems you need to succeed, which includes, you know, a good grants management office, uh, core facilities for all the whatever type of science you're interested in. You also have to figure out when you find that environment, are they going to support the, the time that you need to be successful? If you get told that you need to work at three different sites and drive around and be on call at those different places, and well, where's the, the time that is protected for you to pursue your research? There's no magic formula. You can't say 50% protected time or 30%. You just have to decide for yourself what... What is it that you feel that you need to be successful, especially at the beginning before you have a sort of a staff of people in your lab who can sort of carry the research forward without you being present all the time? So that's the second component is this issue of protected time and to be appropriately compensated for what you do. It's unfortunately the case that to pursue research means that you generate less clinical revenue and therefore your compensation will likely be lower than 100% clinically active surgeons. That may just be the reality in this environment. I, I think that some departments do a better job of compensating surgeon scientists at a level that's appropriate for a surgeon. And at the end of the day, again, if compensation and money is what drives you. This is probably not the path that one would choose. Mentorship is incredibly important in the whole process, from the process of finding the right job, the right place to work, the right scientific questions to ask. And so identifying those people early during residency, fellowship, first job. And it's not just a mentor, but identifying a mentoring team. One mentor will be good for helping you figure out what scientific questions to ask, run their, your grants by them, your papers. Another mentor may be good to help you get into societies more involved with the surgical academic community. And so finding the right team of mentors, and that means being a good mentee as well, because a mentor can't accomplish anything if you're not willing to listen and learn from them. So I think that that's incredibly important to find those people who's maybe whose career you want to emulate, who've done similar things to what you want to do, and who are truly invested in your success. So if you can combine an environment that wants you, that will support you, with mentors who are eager to help you, that will obviously sort of lead to this road towards success. And finally, a social support is important. You have to remember that 
family is the most important thing. And so having the ability to, or having the a family, a, whether it's a spouse or, or parents, children, friends who can support you on this journey is important. And, and people who understand what you're trying to go through, there is no, it's, a, it's very difficult to balance life and work as a surgeon to begin with and as a surgeon scientist. So maybe we have to figure out better how to integrate the two how to integrate work with life and life with work and sort of make it all successful. But I wouldn't forget about the importance of those um, support systems outside of the immediate work environment that will also be integral to, to achieving your goals. Our last question for you is with regards, again, to kind of the new age era that we're in, that the ultimate goal of research is to improve patient care and patient outcomes. And now we're in a generation of social media and a lot of online resources and dissemination. And with the goal of research to improve patient outcomes, we do want to disseminate these things to the the masses, even surgeons in rural communities or who may not have access to some of these journals that are um, institutionally subscribed to, uh, we want them to get this information. And that's what I feel is the utility of social media. However, there was... There's been a conversation at this meeting and in general about how to use utilize altmetrics, Twitter statistics, and things like that in assessing someone in academia with regards to promotion or just with regards to evaluating their success as a surgeon scientist or an academic surgeon. What are your thoughts on that? That is a challenging question to answer, particularly given my lack of participation in the social media community. But I think it's hard to judge quality by popularity. And the uh, at the end of the day, we have to um, ensure, you're right, that, that the word gets out about the work, but that it gets out in a uh, sort of accurate and representative fashion. Often you read an article in the paper that summarizes some study that came out in the New England Journal, The Lancet, and all my members of the family will start to talk about it. Did you hear about this? And then you go back and you read the paper and you find out that what they represented was just so inaccurate. I think we have to be very careful about trying to uh, pare down a complicated multi-center study to just a few lines on a Twitter feed. So I would suggest that um, that we be cautious about that approach, cautious about using the number of uh, tweets or how many um, likes you have as an indicator of quality or success, and maybe just focus on doing the best science we can and disseminating it at venues like national meetings, peer-reviewed journals, and in a way that that we ensure we control the rigor of the um, of the dissemination of that information. I think that's very sage advice as the younger generation attempts to push forward with social media to remember that quality above all, be cautious. Just because something's popular doesn't mean it is of high rigor and quality. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for your time. This has been such an honor and pleasure. 
Thank you. I, it was a pleasure to speak with you. This is Megan. I'm here with uh, Ray Hankey, and we are interviewing Dr. Ponsky after a session here at APSA's 50th anniversary meeting. Dr. Ponsky, you gave a presentation about um, kind of the needs in the, I don't want to say social media platform, but just kind of the, the needs of integrating journal articles, artificial intelligence, and that kind of natural language processing, integrating that into some sort of format where we can digest all of the information that comes at us in medicine and surgery. So can you kind of talk about your presentation and talk about how that led you to the Stay Current app? Yeah. So the gist is that there is an overabundance, there's an explosion and exponential growth of medical content, of medical knowledge. And it's absolutely impossible to be up to date and know about everything that's going on. So we have to figure out how we're going to be curating knowledge, this ridiculous amount of information. So right now, my guess is that some of, I would say, three things that are going to impact the curation are going to be artificial intelligence or machine learning, crowdsourcing, and platforms. So machine learning, we're working on developing an AI algorithm that will use natural language processing. That means that it goes through, it reads it, it picks out words and understands what those words mean and can probably help identify the high-quality journals. Um, that's a technology that is already widely used. And when you talk to editors, what we're studying is if you look at people that actually review articles, that's essentially what they're doing. They're looking for the keywords, the power of the study, the type of the study, blah, blah, blah. So NLP can do that. The second thing is crowdsourcing. We know that the crowd is very good at picking out good content. We don't use them enough. We use an editorial board of 15 people. Instead of using that to decide what we should know, let's let the crowd decide what we should know and have articles voted on. And usually you'll find that the crowd is pretty good about picking out the good content and it rises to the top. So machine learning or AI, crowdsourcing, and platforms. We have to get away from thinking that we're going to spread knowledge around the world by using podiums and journal articles. We have to go digital. We have to figure out how to disseminate it free and easy. And so we've built several different platforms, but the one we've created now is called Stay Current, and it tries to do all the above. It tries to curate content. It also tries to make content really rich, rich media, so engaging, fun, exciting, short bits of content, not long. So that's what we've been that's, – that's my – guess on where the future is going with academic medicine. One of the things in the session was we had a couple other speakers talk about alt metrics, talk about Twitter metrics, and how these sort of online platforms can be integrated into your academic portfolio, into how you assess your academic accomplishments, I guess, with your uh, publications. And there was uh, the discussion afterwards, there, were, there was a lot of discussion about should these be used in looking for promotion? How can you weed out the fake news within these um, Twitter followers and things like that? What are your thoughts mm -hmm. on modernizing surgery and moving into this realm of social media and the online presence? Yep. So uh, you brought up a lot of points that all are somewhat intertwined. So there's no doubt that things are going digital. And for content to get noticed... Uh, just existing inside a journal or one person presenting at a podium is not going to disseminate it. We have found that social media is very good at disseminating. So how do we use it? That's the problem. We get it. We get that social media is great at disseminating. How do we do it responsibly? And how does it translate into academia? 
So some of the points that were made is that you can use social media to disseminate your content. You will get more highly recognized. It doesn't necessarily mean that your alt metric score, which is the score of how much you're on the internet, is going to actually help you get promoted. That's the point. It will disseminate what you're, it will get your word out. It'll get your message out. People will see it, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be something that's measured for your success. However, I think that's going to change. I think that everyone's going to start utilizing these types of alternative metrics to determine how valuable someone's content is. We really appreciate the collaboration with your team and we're looking forward to uh, more collaboration in the future. So thank you for joining us. Let me just congratulate you guys. What you've done with Behind the Knife is fantastic. And uh, Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. Today we have the distinct honor of sitting with Dr. Ronald Bruce Herschel. Dr. Herschel is the Arnold G. Corrin Professor of Surgery and Head of the Section of Pediatric Surgery at the University of Michigan. He trained in pediatric surgery at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia uh, before joining the faculty at Michigan. He is certified in general surgery, pediatric surgery, as well as surgical critical care, uh, and has a master's in clinical research design and statistical analysis. His research in clinical areas of interest and expertise are in the manage of respiratory failure, uh, ECMO, ECLS, as well as implantable artificial lung. Specifically here today, uh, he is, has taken on the role of uh, the president of the American Pediatric Surgical Association, APSA, and has led a phenomenal meeting. So Dr. Herschel, thank you so much for being on with us today. Great to be here. So we wanted to start with uh, congratulating you on a, a great meeting thus far. And we've noticed that uh, there's a lot of new things and we've been hearing a lot of uh, great responses to these new additions, including the tech talks this morning. Just wanted to hear from you about uh, what you had envisioned for this meeting, uh, the changes that you made and, and you know how you went about in implementing them. Absolutely. Well, this is the 50th anniversary of uh, the American Pediatrics uh, Surgical Association, APSA. And so it was a great time to uh, shake things up and, and do things differently as we, we enter our next uh, 50 years. And uh, we've infused a lot of, a lot of history into the, into the meeting, little uh, tributes, two to three minutes on each, before each uh, session for all the presidents, founders, and, and so on. And really great today, we had uh, kind of an armchair uh, discussion with uh, just some of the, uh, some of the senior members of, of pediatric surgery, uh, going all the way back to the founding uh, really of of the specialty, and uh, it was just uh, great to hear them tell the stories instead of reading about them to ha have a first hand witness account but as we uh, as we changed things up, it really was around uh, how we might alter the typical meeting so very often uh, we have long at least in pediatric surgery have a history of having forty five minute to an hour long uh, lectures uh, named lectures and and we've broken it up so it's yeah, basically, there's just about no lecture that's longer than about 20 or 25 minutes. We introduce what we call uh, PED talks or pediatrics, a lot like TED, TED-like talks, pediatric surgery, education, and, uh, and disruption, and try to make those out of the domain of pediatric surgery and in many instances out of the domain of medicine, so on robotics or artificial intelligence. And, and in one case, it was uh, uh, Joe Sacron who's going to talk on Wednesday about uh, firearms violence and as a public health issue, which is in that domain of medicine, but the other two are, are outside. 
We also uh, came from behind the podium. We, um, we put on what's known as a stage thrust, which is uh, 12 feet out, uh, eight foot wide, and, and gave everyone uh, headset mics. So it was kind of fun because uh, first introduction of the, of the uh, meeting, which I gave, I started out behind the podium and then stepped out and went to the front. And it was something that really we had never done before. And all of a sudden, the speakers were out in the crowd. You know, there's something free about that, uh, rather than having a podium between you, the speaker, and and the audience. And uh, and then I think the other thing is that uh, that the emphasis was, uh, for instance, on the tech talks. I think you mentioned the top educational conference talks. We have a wonderful um, process in pediatric surgery, really unique, where where what's known as the uh, professional development C- committee, or what we call the PDC synthesizes all the information from the literature, from our committees, uh, you know, from our meetings and in all the sources, and then synthesizes what the practice gaps are in pediatric surgery, the things that pediatric surgeons need to know. And then uh, the tech talks are, were a summary of the practice gaps from last year in one talk, and then four new uh, talks, 10 or 15 minutes on a practice gap. And, and they, the, the, they were almost like a visual abstract. Uh, that is, it wasn't the fundamental, this is this, is this uh, study, and it had this many patients, and it was randomized, and, you know, and these were the, uh, the control group, and the, instead it was, we had these studies, and this is what they found, and this is what you should be doing. And it was very concise, something that uh, really allows the, the attendees to uh, come away uh, with with what they can you know something they can remember to change their practice and and well thought out well delivered interesting concise and um, and effective so um, uh, so I think that that uh, all together really um, uh, energized the meeting uh, in many ways uh, you know I think will at least for APSA uh, will set the the path for what we'll do in the future. Yeah, and I think the bar has been set quite high. Uh, so in addition to your duties as president of APSA, you also delivered some of your own content. Would you mind sharing that here with our listeners? Yeah, well, the University of Michigan has a, a number of uh, presentations and, uh, and studies that are being presented. Uh, in addition to what I just described are, are the typical uh, scientific presentations. One of the things that we did was we, uh, this year also, which I think is important, is that we increased um, the abstract acceptance rate from about 28% up to about 42%. And that's important because it means that, that more individuals are presenting their data, they're involved in the meeting, um, um, they didn't get an abstract uh, rejection. Um, all that, you know, really is a, a positive, and I think it was very important. Actually, we had a, a number of, uh, of presentations, but I think the one that you're referring to uh, had to do with competency-based training in pediatric surgery. And part of this is because of my experience on the um, Board of Surgery as well as the R- Surgery RRC, and, and the realization that one of the things that we're missing in in surgery training in general, but also in pediatric surgery, is autonomy, especially in that transition to um, being a faculty or attending, you know, a full, fully uh, trained pediatric surgeon. And so uh, we developed a process where our pediatric surgery trainees would, first off, take control of their education. Second off, 
uh, meet criteria such as the number of cases that they did total, the number of cases they did with um, indirect supervision, and then and then the some knowledge uh, elements that they had to uh, achieve. So they had to. We have what's known as entrustable professional activities or EPAs, and uh, EPAs around things like uh, pyloromyotomy, appendicitis, appendectomy, um, and laparoscopic inguinal hernia. So they had to achieve uh, knowledge level around the EPA. They had to have adequate uh, uh, communication assessment uh, tool uh, performance in communicating with parents, and they had to have the appropriate uh, uh, OPRS uh, ratings on uh, and a, a number of cases. And then we actually sent uh, videotapes of them operating to uh, reviewers outside uh, outside of our institution. And if all that came together, then we deemed that they were are uh, competent. And at that point, we allow them uh, more autonomy. Still, uh, you know, we're still the attendings and we still you know, are available um, often in the operating room, but we allow more autonomy and start to transition them toward a, uh, well, just a more autonomous role. And we like that because, and it, and it was effective because they are going to go out in a matter of months and be an autonomous um, attending. So, you know, to, to say July or June 30th, I'm not uh, autonomous and July 1 I am is such an abrupt change. And we believe that uh, there's a transition that can be more effective. The one question I have about that, and the one question that always arises when we t have discussions about surgical education and autonomy is um, with patients. And in these EPAs, once you allow them to have that progressive autonomy, have you run into issues yet as far as patients saying, oh, uh, is, are you going to be doing that critical portion, Dr. Herschel, or is it going to be your fellow? Sure. If So if a patient asked for that, then we would, uh, we would uh, abide by it. But in fact, uh, that's that's one of the uh, interesting aspects of surgical training, right? I mean, you are as, as trainees know that uh, that uh, trainees uh, have a certain level of autonomy. We allow a certain level of autonomy, and that's necessary in order to do training. Uh, so we're not we're actually, if you think about it, we're not doing anything. We're really not doing anything differently than than what is already. Uh, the way training works now, uh, what we're doing is making uh, the process more structured so that instead of just saying, well, I, I, I think this individual is, uh, is ready to be more autonomous, what we're doing is saying, here are the milestones that you need to reach in order to, to be more autonomous. And so it's, it's uh, as I said, it's just more structured. It's putting some kind of taking out of the black box and putting some structure around training and putting uh, a structure around a sense of whether a resident or fellow is ready for moving forward in terms of their autonomy. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Herschel, for your time. It was an honor and pleasure to meet you. We hope to see you around. Until next time, dominate the day. Okay.